They say most of your brain shuts down in cryosleep. All but the primitive side. The animal side. No wonder I'm still awake. Welcome to Now Playing's Riddick Movie Retrospective Series. Yeah, let's cut him loose. Posted by Jacob. All you people are so scared of me. Most days I take that as a compliment. Rock. Is he really that dangerous? Why are out humans? And Arnie. Well, maybe you just come back and skull fuck you in your sleep. This movie review will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You're not afraid of the dark, are you? Listener discretion is advised. One speed. Mine. If you can't keep up, don't step up. You'll just die. Today we're talking about Pitch Black, starring Vin Diesel, Rada Mitchell, Cole Hauser, Louis Fitzgerald, Claudia Black, Keith David, and directed by David Tui. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. There's no part of me that wants to be part of the human race. This is Jacob. This is Arnie. You don't know who you're fucking with. <laughs> As we all try to do our best Vin Diesel, and we all suck. We all just are terrible about that. <laughs> if you think Vin Diesel does it good, well, I guess we'll be discussing that. Yeah, yours are a little like Batman, though, Arnie. Yours are a little bit like Christian Bale, Clint Eastwood going on. <laughs> you're not afraid of the dark, right? <laughs> I just go to Stallone when I think of. I know. I'm thinking to myself, Yo, Adrian. Yeah, that's that's exactly the voice you're doing. I'm confused. <laughs> that's, all, that's all I can think of when I think of these. <laughs> um, welcome to our Riddick retrospective, our kind of a mini series for us, if you will, as we discuss the three Riddick films in anticipation of the new movie called Riddick coming out later this year. It's a mini series for you, not for me. <laughs> Arnie, this isn't mini for you. You're watching all the extras, watching all the different cuts. Sounds like you're the fan here. I am, and I'm watching extras. I'm watching alternate cuts. I'm watching TV specials. I'm watching direct-to-DVD animated films. I'm reminding myself the storyline of video games I played over five years ago. Yeah. This miniseries, I think I spent less time on Supergirl. <laughs> and I'm returning to Pitch Black. This is the second time I've watched it. I watched it the first time just a couple of years ago. But I guess I am in this casual fan slot of this retrospective, having seen it before and was willing to watch it again for you all. <laughs> And I'm the newbie here. I have not seen Pitch Black prior to watching it for this podcast. Haven't seen Chronicles. I know of them. I remember seeing the trailer for Pitch Black and going, oh, that looks like an alien ripoff. But I guess that's what we're here to discuss. See, when that movie came out in 2000, I was really excited for it. I'm a fan of the movie Screamers, and it looked a lot like Screamers to me. <laughs> You should have been on that retrospective. You could have been the one green arrow that movie got. I certainly would have been. And it didn't look that inventive, but sci-fi movies around this time were by and large really disappointing me. If you remember Jamie Lee Curtis in Virus and that kind of dreck. No, I don't. <laughs> that came out? What's that? 
<laughs> exactly. I saw that in theaters. So when Pitch Black came out, I was intrigued. I didn't see it in theaters. I did see it on DVD when it was a new release, though, and became a fan of Riddick, which we will talk about, and a fan of Vin Diesel. Now, he's a guy who I had seen once before. I saw Saving Private Ryan in theaters. I don't remember him in it. <laughs> yeah, this is like his first big role, isn't it? He, he hadn't done Triple X or those Fast and Furious movies yet by this point, or The Pacifier. No, this was his first starring role and was the first in a succession of action films. I actually became a fan of Vin Diesel's before I saw Pitch Black. I didn't know he was the voice of the Iron Giant at the time, and I remember him very clearly in Private Ryan, actually. he uh, I thought he did quite well in there. The reason I saw Pitch Black was because of the pacifier. I couldn't believe that this guy was able to take such a premise that we have seen before. Hulk Hogan did that. Arnold Schwarzenegger. So I figured, after watching that, I was like, well, there you go. He actually pulled it off. And I was like, good for him. I'll give him another chance because I actually liked what he was doing with such a rote kind of movie. And that's what made me watch Pitch Black, which I considered as well, Arnie, what looked like a rote movie to me. Brock, you're the only person that took that journey from the pacifier to Pitch Black. <laughs> Guaranteed. Yeah. <laughs> I went the other way. I was a fan of Vin Diesel where I saw him in this. As soon as I saw him in this, I knew he was somebody to watch. He was in Knockaround Guys the same year, which I watched, but not for him. Triple X. I even watched A Man Apart, if you guys remember his dramatic turn in 2003. It was around the time of The Pacifier that I kind of jumped ship. I did see The Pacifier, but then I didn't follow him on past that into Babylon and Wheelman and that type of thing. Well, Boiler Room he was okay in. It wasn't his movie, but yeah, he was okay. He was okay in it. He was okay. Giovanni Ribisi was great in it. Indeed. Do you guys remember this film coming out, though? Because I remember seeing trailers for it. I don't really remember anything special about the release, so I was extremely shocked when I found out it was apparently a heralded release. Heralded release? I mean, I remember the trailers. Again, it came off to me very alien. I remember a lot of, it's called Pitch Black, a lot of dark shots with some shadowy aliens moving around and Vin Diesel looking tough guy. Nothing about that trailer yelled to me that this was special. I remember its release, but I remember writing it off. And I remember that I was completely uninterested in seeing this movie. This didn't scream, go see this, when it first came out. Well, in addition to having a novelization, which I did not read, but I did read some summaries of in preparation of this, this came out in February of the year 2000, February 18th to be exact, and we all know how these Valentine's Day genre releases go. <laughs> We've reviewed enough of them. <laughs> yes. But in addition, there was a made-for-sci-fi one-hour sequel that aired before this movie came out, making this movie actually a prequel to the Sci-Fi Channel one-hour movie. Oh, boy. And what was the plot of the Sci-Fi movie? It's about six months after the events in Pitch Black, and an investigator is tasked with finding Riddick. Unable to do so on his own, he hires a female mercenary to help him, and the two rundown dossiers of the survivors of the crash, giving us copious footage from Pitch Black, so we are enticed to see the movie. You can read my full review of this on the Venganza Media Gazette later this week, but it was a promotional let's-go-see-Pitch-Black special without the usual making-of type stuff. Anyone note of note in the movie? Well, 
It's got Keith David and Vin Diesel in some scenes. <laughs> I, it sounds like an X Files sort original of thing. One. Yeah, obviously, but I was thinking maybe like had like some kind of like Scully and Mulder uh, knockoff people. Sounds like to me investigating this stuff. And you can find out by reading the Venganza Media Gazette. I will do so. But in addition to this being the first Vin Diesel movie, it's directed by David Tui. Now. Here's somebody who I didn't know by name, but I knew his work, and I think we all do. I mean, he's the guy who wrote The Fugitive. Oh, okay. I think that's a reference point for just about everyone. If you don't know that one, I, I don't know what you're doing listening to this podcast. He also wrote Critters 2, so if you don't know that one, I don't know what you're doing listening to this podcast. <laughs> you're probably a big fan of this podcast if you know Critters 2. <laughs> but if you are familiar with this man's work, he's also full of things that aren't so noteworthy like perhaps you've seen Waterworld, which i think is underrated but still not very well liked you have another philip k dick retrospective movie imposter and of course gi jane with demi moore what's strange to me is i've seen so much of this man's oeuvre as a writer i mean critters 2 warlock the fugitive but in addition to Waterworld and gi jane he also did a couple of Charlie Sheen movies, The Arrival, Terminal Velocity. I have seen so much that this man has written, and he even directed The Arrival, which I don't recommend. But I didn't know him by name. I didn't realize it was that guy doing all the same work, honestly. I wasn't paying attention to screenwriters in the 90s. And when I was looking up who was the director and writer of Pitch Black and found out he did all of this, I'm like, well, crap, I've seen almost his entire career. Have you guys seen The Perfect Getaway with Steve Zahn? He also wrote and directed that one right after the second Riddick movie. If you haven't seen that one, it's interesting. And that's all I'm going to say about that. There's a lot of twists in there and stuff. It almost works. So check that out if you if you feel like it. But... His name is Tui. So which of the Tui cuts of this film did you see? Because there's the theatrical cut and then the unrated director's cut. <laughs> I watched the cut that Netflix sent to me, which was the, I guess, unrated director's cut. I, too, was sent by Netflix the unrated director's cut, even though I could have swore I pressed the button for the theatrical release. I am not a fan, as I've been on the record saying many times, of unrated director's cuts or unrated versions. Too hot for the screen. Yeah, I don't, I don't buy into that. There's a reason a lot of this stuff is cut. But I had seen the theatrical cut previously, and as we'll talk about, it's only three minutes extra footage, but I couldn't tell you what the differences were <laughs> unless I looked them up. So I, for this version, I technically saw the director's cut. And I watched both cuts. And you could tell a difference. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't we talk about it by starting with a plot summary. The spaceship Hunter Gratzner is carrying a number of passengers in cryosleep. But when the ship passes through a comet's tail, a malfunction kills the captain and several others on board. Awoken, pilot Carolyn Fry tries to land on a distant planet, and when the load appears too heavy, she tries to jettison the other passengers, despite the protests of her co-pilot. The jettison unit also malfunctions, and she cannot drop the passengers, but she manages to land semi-safely on the planet. Her co-pilot was impaled in the crash. His secret of her attempting to kill the other passengers dies with him. But there are several survivors, including a Muslim imam and three of his children followers on their way to New Mecca, an antique dealer named Paris, two Australian settlers, Zeke and Shaza, and a stowaway named Jack. But the two most notable passengers are William J. Johns, a bounty hunter pretending to be a cop, and his captive, Richard J. Riddick, an extremely violent killer who's had his eyes implanted for night vision. 
On the planet, Riddick escapes and the others go in search for civilization. But when one of the survivors is killed, Riddick is the likely suspect and he's hunted down. But soon it's discovered the planet is full of vicious predators. The winged beasts fear the light, so they seem harmless enough as the planet has three suns, guaranteeing permanent daylight. They find a geological settlement abandoned with a ship that could get them to a space lane, but the ship has no power. They need to return to their crash site, get the power cells, and then get back to the ship. Which would be easy enough, except a rare solar eclipse is hitting the planet and the creatures have come to feed. They smell blood, and it turns out Jack is a girl, and she's luring the beasts. The survivors are forced to turn to Riddick for assistance, but aren't sure if they can trust the criminal. After several others are killed by the creatures, John finally tries to ally with Riddick to kill Jack while the others escape, but Riddick kills John's instead. Finally, with only Fry, Jack, Imam, and Riddick alive, Riddick tucks the three in a cave and runs for the ship, but Fry pursues and convinces Riddick to help the other two escape. As Riddick had come to respect Fry and had an affection for Jack, who idolized the criminal, Riddick agrees. The foursome make it to the ship, but before she can get on board, Fry is killed. Riddick, Imam, and Jack escape, killing several of the beasts in their backwash, and when Jack asks Riddick what he'll tell investigators who go looking for him, he says Riddick died somewhere on that planet. So that is the film. We've kind of called it derivative. I don't think that plot summary changes that any. I don't think this is a movie about story. It's a movie about style and execution. And it's a plot we've seen a dozen times. The question is, does Tui and Diesel pull it off better or worse than most? I don't think there's a problem necessarily having a plot we've seen before. Sports movies do it all the time, sort of romantic comedies. It really is in the execution and really how they tell the story and how they do it. And what's always something a little different here and there, of course, to tell this particular story or that particular story. But if you do it well, we'll forgive that. Not a problem. I agree. I think a, a great example is Real Steel. Like, we all know where that movie's going, right? But I ended up enjoying it. It had some great acting in it. So you get a derivative movie, especially sci-fi action. That's kind of in my wheelhouse. I could go with that. Give me some fun, creative action. Give me some, you know, semi-interesting characters that I could get interested in. And I could go with it. And it helps for me to have familiar actors in there. And Keith David is always a welcome presence, especially in a genre film. At this point, he, you know, coming off Armageddon and a number of other hits. Sure. Also in here is Cole Hauser, not a name that rolls off the tongue, but I've seen him quite a bit. He's in a lot of B-movies, right? He's like Michael Bean, right? I mean, Goodwill Hunting and Too Fast, Too Furious. I don't know that I call those B-movies. I concur. If he's in those, those are not B-movies. He was in Olympus Has Fallen this year. Oh. Uh, what about Rada Mitchell? I recognize her name and her face, but she kind of went away after this movie and others, right? Around this time, she was the Julia Ormond of the day, if you, <laughs> if, you, if you will. You know, she came around for a few movies and they disappeared. I had seen her in nothing. I remembered her from nothing. When I looked her up on IMDb, I went, oh, that was her in Silent Hill and completely forgot about her again. <laughs> but with this cast, I'm open to give this movie a try. It's already got a step up on a lot of the made-for-sci-fi similar films of Alien Invasion. But the goodwill goes away fairly quickly in the opening scene where, my God, has CGI come so far in just 13 years? Yes. Yeah. It has. <laughs> 
I feel like this is something that comes up and up again with now playing. Uh, I don't think there's anything that's atrocious here. Is it dated? Yes. Is it pulling me out? Well, no, because I know this is a 13-year-old movie. And for me, in the opening scene, I didn't catch it as much as later on we're on the planet when they're clearly in front of a green screen and the people like clearly behind them is a green screen and they're not looking at anything. But here in the opening, I, I didn't catch that much at all. Oh, the opening shot of the ship, the rivets flying, it really looked bad to me. And some of it is budget. Some of it is the time. But some of it is, I hate to say it, but Tui. Tui decided to do some really strange things in this crash sequence. It's like he stretched the negative. People's faces are getting distorted. And he's jump cutting into mirror cuts so that she's facing right, she's facing left, she's facing right again. It was really frustrating, and honestly, it felt amateurish. This was not Tui's first film, but from these opening scenes, I would have thought it was. And for me, this is about what I expected for this kind of film, so maybe that's why I'm able to just roll with it. Yeah. What I did find confusing, though, so we open up with this big ship, we get Vin Diesel doing his tough guy voiceover, talking about how he doesn't sleep because the animal side of the brain doesn't sleep, and I guess he's all animal. But then we get this whole breach. Something attacks the ship or something's breaking it up. There's a big debate later on, you know, was it a comet? I thought someone was attacking the ship. The way this debris comes in and it, like, directly hits the captain like it was a targeted hit. Like, you know, they were bullets being shot. Uh, did you guys find this confusing? Because I, I never bought that this was a comment. I was waiting the whole time to find out, like, someone intentionally made them crash land here. I was really hoping that was the secret in the sci-fi special. <laughs> because, yeah, it, it's really ill-defined. They kind of speculate it's a comet. The going story is it's a comet. It's what the sci-fi channel tells me is it's a comet, but really it's kicking off the plot. These people have to be on this planet. How are we going to get them there? Malfunction of some sort. We don't care enough to make it well-defined. <laughs> and it's not the first time they'll do that. You know, but I thought the comet hit them, and then they were in the atmosphere of the planet, which was making the ship fall apart. That's how I took it, because she couldn't get the ship straight or pointed correctly, and she had to get rid of the extra weight because she couldn't get the ship righted, and therefore, because the atmosphere was there tearing the ship apart because it was coming in at the wrong angle. That's how I took it. Well, there was something about the planet, because she does this hysterical take. You know those <laughs> movies where they're flying an airplane and they're arguing? And somebody screams, mountain! And they turn and they do the, oh, there's a mountain! And they have to pull up and they barely miss the mountain. That's the reaction she gives, only it's, planet! <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is something, for some reason they're off course, for some reason they're in the gravitational pull of this planet, because when Fry and Owens, they eject out of their chrono sleep, and Owens, why isn't there gravity? Why isn't there gravity? It's kind of funny how he just falls on top of her. <laughs> I, again, Something's pushed them towards this planet. I guess it was just a comet's tail. It just whipped them right right into its orbit. I have one other question. Having seen the movie twice, I'm still not sure. Where's the ship supposed to go? It's like a commercial ship. And for some reason, they're bringing Riddick along because we think that the guy's a cop, right? So from what I understand, it's like a space shuttle. It's like a commuter line. I just would be very weirded out if I go on my American Airlines flight for San Diego Comic-Con and... Hannibal Lecter is on board in the full getup. Well, you know, this is like Spirit Airlines. You you get bare bones with this, and there might be a murderer on the ship with you. Yeah, I got the – there was one guy, what, the, trying to go to France and some people trying to go to New Mecca. And, yeah, it was just like this was a Greyhound bus. But 
they're all going different places because they're trying to get Riddick to the prison. Imam and his followers are trying to get to New Mecca. Paris, he's not trying to get to Paris. His name is Paris. Well, he said he wanted to drink his wine at the end in, in Paris or see France or something. He's he's going somewhere. <laughs> I think the Greyhound bus is a perfect analogy for it because it's not – to us, you know, space travel you know, is, is different in our minds or an airplane travel is different in our minds. You go from one place to another. But here, definitely, I think a bus is a great analogy. I would just be pissed. I'd want my money back if there was a convicted murderer on They would never know it's a convicted murderer unless the thing crashed though, right? He's got a, he's got a horse bit in his mouth. Yeah, he's got a blindfold. He's the only one chained up. I mean, you're going to wake up and go, um, yeah, who's the crazy guy with the bit in the mouth? Yeah, I stand corrected. He was chained up. You're right. And my final gripe of logic, and this may be it for the whole movie, is they're obviously ripping off Alien from the word go, right? I mean, how does Alien start? You've got the spaceship in space and the people waking up. You've got the same thing here. They're trying to be more action-y. But in Alien... The people sleep in, like, pajamas and underwear. How long have these people been asleep, and how grody are their clothes that they've been wearing for how many years? <laughs> it's just weird, because they kind of just wake up, like, oh, there's a crash going on, we're just going to wake up. Like, if you're chrono asleep, that's like, what, being frozen, right? That's like, you got to thaw out. Yeah, they really woke up pretty quick. I have to think this isn't, like, a three-hour tour. You wouldn't be putting a <laughs> chrono sleep for that. <laughs> But the weather did start getting rough. The mighty ship was tossed. If Gilligan was on this thing, that'd be fucking awesome. <laughs> but instead of the fearless crew, instead, Fry decides to kill them all. Look, I kind of get this. I, I've done the whole lifeguard training thing, and one of the first things they teach you, if there's someone drowning and there's a chance you're going to die going out to save them, you let them drown. You do not put your life in danger to save someone that's already going to die. And so, hey, you know, if she's got to save the ship for two of them, uh, they they were sleeping, weren't they? At this point, they were still they didn't know what was going on. Baywatch would have been a totally different show with that kind of philosophy. Honestly, and I'm thinking to myself, I wouldn't have gone to the pool this summer if I'd known this information. You must go to a dangerous pool. I, I don't think there's a lot of dangers in a pool. I'm talking more about the ocean. <laughs> it's a public pool, Jacob. There could be a murder in uh, okay, yes. in the locker room for all I know with a bit in his mouth. There's snakes in the pool. <laughs> I think we're supposed to not like Fry for deciding to jettison them all, but I hate to say it, but I kind of understand what you're coming from, Jacob. If it's people I don't know or me, I mean, theoretically, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, but it's a lot harder when they're the anonymous many. Wrong retrospective. I don't know. I'm used to pilots, you know, risking their lives to save their crew and their passengers from countless numbers of movies about ships and airplanes. They can't all be Sully. <laughs> And they can't all be Robert Hayes, for all we know. But yes, the movie wants us to hate her because of this. It's kind of a nice character-defining moment. We don't get a lot of those in this movie. It's nice that we have, right off the top, some character development. I didn't get hate off of her. I, I took her as cutthroat. She was willing to do what she needs to do to survive. And this movie's full of those kinds of people. For some reason, I think it's an interesting dynamic that they make it the woman who's willing to kill them all to survive and the guy who's screaming, you can't do that. It seems like... The stereotype is they'd reverse that. And I also think we're supposed to consider this movie Fry's redemption arc. The act she does here in the beginning and the specific line, I'm not going to die for them. And, I mean, we've heard the plot summary. She does die for them. This is supposed to be a huge moment. I don't think it plays like one. Yeah, I'm surprised that Fry even lived through this. You know, the window's blown out of the ship. She goes nose first in this planet. Like, there's no protection between her and the many pebbles coming at her face at hundreds of miles an hour. I, I was shocked she even made it through this crash landing. I thought 
by not letting them go, she was sacrificing herself right there. But logic, different universe, works differently. But I'm kind of glad 30 people do die in this crash because they say there were 40 on board. We end up with about 10. That's still a lot too many. I realize we've discussed enough horror movies. You want a good body count. You need to start with a good number of people to die. But I'm getting kind of confused. And with the filter they put on this lens when they get to the planet, everything's blue. Skin color is washed out. I'm getting Imam's followers confused. I mean, they're all wearing about the same outfit. They're all about the same age. There was actually 40 people on this spaceship i missed that i i was actually really confused after this thing crash landed because i thought oh these people were frozen they're gonna have to wake them up i thought these were like pirates from the planet like raiding the ship or something at the beginning i i was really confused about what was going on after this crash it didn't help like you said arnie that the filters they used to emulate the light from these different suns yeah it washes out the color there are times where this is almost a black and white movie yeah it reminded me of black hawk down a lot we talked a little bit about this in um Star Trek Nemesis, it got very distracting, and I kind of dug the idea of having the blue tinge and then the washed out when they're outside, blah, 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 but it got annoying on the eyes to watch, kind of like sometimes when 3D, you just had enough of 3D, and so I couldn't wait for it to get dark so we didn't have to keep looking at these choices anymore. Then it'd all just be black, <laughs> pitch black. Tui said in the commentary his initial plan was that this would be completely lit by the actors. If an actor is carrying a torch, the only light on the entire set would be the torch. And the cameraman just looked at him and said, so you want to film this in my fucking backyard? Because that's all they'll be able to see. I was shocked, though, once they do land, that this is a planet that has no darkness. There's a twist for me, like pitch black. I remember black aliens in caves and you couldn't see anything in those trailers. So that intrigued me, at least. I'm like, okay, you're on a planet with three suns. You see two go down, but another one comes up. So it's always daytime. Huh, what does the pitch black refer to then? It, it, It was something that kept my interest. If there's all these issues with physics and logic at the beginning here, at least there's that idea that's keeping me going. I knew where this was going. I knew from the trailers. I like the fake out that there's the three suns. It's just, yeah, the style of it was killing me that there's a blue sun, so we're going to make everything blue when it's in the horizon. And there's an orange sun, so everything is going to be orange. Not to get too far ahead, though, but don't you think nature would find a way for these creatures to live in sunlight if there's no darkness? Don't get me started on evolution here. (laughs) (laughs) I wondered that myself, but... I think they have a weird sleep cycle. Like, they hibernate just long enough for the suns to all go behind each other, and then they are the dominant species. There are these giant boneyards. I mean, this is quite obviously the highest thing on the food chain on whatever this planet is. It's the only creature we encounter on the entire planet. The other humans who were there died. There are giant boneyards of, like, elephant dinosaurs. They're all dead. I'm curious if they have, like, locusts ended their own food supply. If this ship hadn't crashed, what would they have eaten? They do turn on each other at one point. So that's kind of against evolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're familiar with the cicadas that hatched this past summer on the East Coast after, what, 17 years in the ground, maybe they're like that, but they've eaten all the food. After 22 years, there's not – these elephants have not returned apparently. There's – they've eaten all the life. I'm just giving – okay, this is sci-fi action. I'm going to not try to get too caught up in the science, but you're stretching it here. 
This is the part of the movie, though, and I think Jacob and I have both said this in other podcasts, is that we will let them set up their sandbox and then see what they do with it. But yes, these questions have to be raised, but I'm still in the mode of, okay, bring it on. We'll see what's going on. I think the reason that it really bugs me here in this first act is because our main character is Fry. We have Riddick. He's in the background. Like you said, he has that opening monologue. But he runs off, and we are being introduced to Fry and Johns and Paris and all of these other people, and I'm trying to keep them straight, but they are a load of uninteresting stereotypes. Yeah, I'm interested to hear what the extra footage is in this director's guy. Brock, you said it's only three minutes. I felt like maybe they threw in a bunch of extra quote-unquote character moments at the beginning here because i'm like let's get to vin diesel let's get to riddick he's he's obviously the 600 pound gorilla in the deserted planet he's the murderer he's supposed to be this ultimate evil we haven't seen him do anything evil yet except hide out with a shiv but we keep being told that he's this really bad guy but let's ignore him for the next hour and, and focus on these other people is this what they added in more character moments oh yes indeed it's actually only a couple of minutes but right. there's more scenes between Johns and Fry and just – it's all in the first hour. It's all before night falls, and none of it has to do with Riddick. And it hurts a little bit with the pacing, but it's only three minutes, and it's here and there. And honestly, a couple of things jumped out at me from – because I only had just watched this movie for the first time a couple of years ago. But most of it I didn't even notice was added in. I did notice the pacing was dragging, but I couldn't figure out why. The pacing was dragging in both cuts, in my opinion. Yeah, if it's only three minutes, it had to be in the theatrical cut, too. Yeah, and it is just all right here. And you say you're waiting to get to Riddick. What I understand from the commentaries is the test audiences were like, let's get to the monsters. And so they cut a couple minutes down to get to those monsters a couple minutes quicker. But they call it the unrated director's cut. I call it the unholy cash grab. They just wanted to release something for people who already bought it once to go buy it again. Which is one of the big reasons I don't like director's cuts and unrated cuts, because usually they don't add anything of value except clearly they want to sell their DVD. And a lot of times I'll go for it. I'm actually a big fan of director's cuts if it is indeed the director's vision being restored. If there are scenes that the director wanted and the studio is saying, no, you got to make it faster, you got to get to the action quicker, I want those scenes back in. But here, it wasn't cuts for the MPAA. They put unrated on there. There's not a single minute of gore that was cut, not a frame. It's not like Tui was sitting around bemoaning these moments. Yeah, they're they're nice little moments if you're really into these characters, but... Yeah, I agree. I want to get to Riddick. I want to get to the monsters. And this movie takes its damn sweet time to get there. Riddick doesn't say his first word until I check the clock exactly 30 minutes into this film. I didn't even notice he wasn't talking because I was so engrossed in the character work. No, I didn't even notice because he was there. Even though he wasn't there, his presence was there, and he, and he kept on flashing little bits of him here and there. He wasn't not in the movie. He just didn't speak. Right. Yeah, there's a weird scene where he, like, takes a lock of Fry's hair. I'm like, is he going to clone her with that? Like, it's, it's <laughs> some weird stuff in this movie. That was like Stalker, wasn't it? He sniffs the cut hair. Yeah. I think this is what Crispin Glover was making fun of when he did his Charlie's Angels thing. And you're the only one. I, no, I'm sorry. But I love that scene when he sniffs her hair and his eavesdropping. 
and picking up all this little knowledge to use later. I really got presence off Vin Diesel. He's not saying a word, but he's doing so much for me. And without even eyes, you can't even see his eyes. And in the body language, what he was doing, I could see the wheels turning in his head, quote unquote, in that scene and others. I really dug how they introduced Riddick. He is great. I think that's why I want to get to him is he's there and he is so foreboding. He's got just a wonderful presence. This guy is a star in a star-making role. I mean, we've talked about it before. When you see a movie and all of a sudden you realize this person is a star and this is what happened with him. This is a February release. Usually those are completely shit upon looking at you, Daredevil. That did nothing for Affleck's career. Ghost Rider did nothing for Nick Cage's career. These were people in the decline. But here... You take Vin Diesel and this movie, and people knew this was an action star in a time when action stars were desperately needed. I mean, Arnold was really in the decline. End of days, we needed new stars, and this guy could have been the next Stallone, the next Arnold. And they immediately grabbed him for that for more movies. It is all his body language in this first half hour. You can't take your eyes off the guy and... He, ironically, is wearing goggles. You know, I, I get it. Arnold was on the decline. Stallone was on the decline. We needed a new action hero. This guy had muscles. I don't think this is anything groundbreaking. Here you've set up this plot. We're stranded on a desert island with a murderer. Let's do something dangerous. I want to see what's dangerous about Riddick. We know something's up with his eyes. He's wearing these goggles the whole time. We're told he's super evil. He said in his monologue, he's more animal than man. I want to get to this guy. I want to see what's so special about him. Why should I be worried for the rest of this crew? Yeah, and I think that's what we're complaining about with the pacing. I think we're all seeing what this movie can be and what we're going to do. But as Arnie said, they take their sweet time doing it, and it does get frustrating. It really, really does. But on the other hand, maybe it's because the second time I've seen it, Jacob, I was kind of digging more of – Riddick coming in and out, and I was really digging that scene when the guy gets pulled down the hole and that kind of stuff. I was really liking the setup more this time. Still, again, I'm with you. It could have gotten to the bad guys faster, but I still was enjoying enough of what I was watching to stay interested in what's going on. And I feel like uh, I'm frustrated because I, much like Riddick, I'm being blinded here. I'm having something pulled over my eyes. They mistakenly killed someone thinking it was Riddick and they wanted to bury his body. So Zeke finds this hole and he gets pulled into it. We're supposed to think it's Riddick that did it. Good. Finally, this murder mystery has started. But nope, we're going to go down to the hole and find other killers. Like this movie keeps shifting on me and I just want to know what the damn story is. Is it we're marooned on a planet, stuck with a murderer? Oh, now there's aliens on here that we're going to have to fight. Like pick a plot and go with it. This is where I think sometimes seeing a trailer really helps you with a movie. Because I'd seen the trailer for this, and I knew what this was. In the trailer, one of the last scenes, and I just, I didn't even rewatch the trailers on the Blu-ray. I just remember it, is the scene where Paris takes a drink of liquor and spits it out into a flame, and it illuminates all around him, and you see all these monsters around him. I know this is a monster movie. I know Riddick isn't the killer of this. I know from the first time I watched it, what movie I'm watching. I just need to wait for it to get there. And it certainly is taking its time world building. Yeah. The key is with fiction, they always say that you get one unbelievable element. And the question I have is, is there too many? Because you one unbelievable element could be Riddick, who's basically the Superman. He's got night vision. He's unbelievably strong. He's so strong-willed. He will dislocate his own shoulders to escape. But then you also have 
this planet with all the suns and the aliens? And does it stretch suspension of disbelief a little too far? My biggest problem, and it's going to go throughout this film, is I remember one of the taglines, something like evil versus evil or evil need to be used to defeat evil. Because we're supposed to believe Riddick's this totally bad guy. We're only told that, though. We are never shown. He doesn't kill anyone here. He's kind of a douche at times. But evil? (laughs) Like... This is a dog whose bark is worse than its bite. I think the unbelievable element, Arnie, for me, is the Riddick character in a group of these average people. Because if you're in a sci-fi universe on a sci-fi situation and planet, that's the setting. So you have to go with that of seeing a sci-fi movie. You see what I mean? You're going in knowing that. So the unbelievable element in this sci-fi movie is this superhuman guy with special vision. So I'm giving them Riddick, but the rest of it is just the movie yeah i'm gonna give him riddick we have this character named jack who totally loves riddick i like jack he's putting glasses on like riddick he wants to be like him i i get that that's cool that's funny i like that character how he's emulating this supposed serial killer or whatever riddick is and we get this line like he paid someone what 25 bucks to get his eyes transplanted okay whatever you happen to be able to see in the dark in this planet that's gonna go dark i'm willing to give it that it's a huge happenstance but okay seeing in the dark in a planet that's completely dark that's my mulligan for the movie that's a huge one how convenient this man can see in the dark when it's all gonna get dark but i'm willing to give it that because i want to see where it's going i'm interested enough to know i'm willing to give it both and again i think it's because i saw the trailer I go with the eyes. I think it's a cool little thing because in addition to being a strength in this beginning, it's his weakness. John's overpowers him pretty easily by pulling off his goggles and with all this sunlight, he's taken right down. But is there any other member of this crew that you focus on? I can't even warm up to Keith David, the other actor I know really well, in this role. He's not given a lot to do. There's so many characters, I'm getting lost in them. I don't care for Johns. I don't care for Fry. I want Vin Diesel to become the star he will in the second half of the film, because the rest of this cast is just whiffing. I don't really care about the whole drug subplot for Johns. Putting it in his eyeball was yeah not really fun to watch i don't really need that kind of stuff i kind of like that we had rada mitchell had a little bit going on because she's the second lead in the movie right but the rest of the cast you're right but i do recognize they set up the stereotypes enough for me that i know who everybody is except for the three followers of keith david it's better than most horror movies that you have a bunch of kids that look the same at least they're trying to give a bit of differentiation do i care about most of them no but they're setting them up enough for me to follow it yeah, I'll give this movie props for the Imam character. You know, this did come out before 9-11. We have a Muslim character here that's positive. I don't know. He comes back in Chronicles, and we'll see what they do with them. But they make him a very positive character, I think, in this film, which, you know, wasn't a big deal then. I, I think some people might have a problem, you know, with Muslims being seen in a positive light after 9-11. I don't. I'm not saying that, but I think there is a certain number of audiences that would. But, you know, okay, that's cool. We got a positive Muslim character here. But, yeah, do something with them. Yeah, I wish that for a futuristic one, though, that they were doing more than just going to New Mecca. They have a positive portrayal of Islam, but then they kind of play fast and loose. I don't think Islam would be down with moving Mecca. In fact, part of Islam (laughs) is that you don't move Mecca. (laughs) It is futuristic Mecca, Arnie, though. Maybe the rules are different. And also, 
I just would have been happier if they'd actually cast a Muslim in the role. <laughs> it's Keith David. I'm sure Muslims would agree with you, Arnie. I just can't not see Keith David. And I don't know, if I'm going to prescribe one line to Keith David, he's done a ton of iconic roles, but I always see him in Requiem for a Dream. Us to us. <laughs> That's not very Islam. <laughs> I think we're doing what the movie did in delaying long enough to get to the kills. Let's talk about some kills here, people. (laughs) Yeah, Zeke died and everyone blamed Riddick. We knew better. Riddick knew better. But But no one listens to him. That's because he doesn't say anything for a half hour. (laughs) (laughs) They They can't hear his body language. But when he finally does speak, he convinces Fry he might not be lying and she climbs down that hole. I like this scene. I like the scene a lot. I thought it was exciting. I liked she tried to escape. I like she was pulled back in at the end of it. That was a really nice capper to the whole thing. What a nice little action scene. Yeah, I don't know why she didn't get that rope off. She's trying to climb up that hole, and they're, like, holding it on the other end. She's trying to get out, you know, through a, a different exit on this cave where these monsters are trying to get her. I'm like, get that rope off. And then, she, yeah, she gets pulled in. That was a nice little surprise when she gets pulled back in. Yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you wouldn't want to go into a hole without a safety rope. And I've never seen a safety rope used as an agent of your death. She does escape, but I, I'd i forgotten that she lived to the end. And I thought for sure that this was going to be what kills her. And the surprise of breaking down the wall to get her out, too. Didn't see that coming either. The whole scene was crafted pretty well from start to finish. It was a nice little action scene with some surprises in it. And it makes no sense, but Riddick shaking his chains rhythmically during it all, basically adding percussion to the score, it sets the mood. And that's the first introduction we have to the aliens on the planet, right? Now we all know they're there, and now the plot can start in earnest as they approach the settlement of the previous humans that were on the planet. And these are baby aliens. Later on, we're going to see bigger ones. These were the newly hatched ones I found out in the commentary. I didn't think I got a good enough glimpse to realize, but apparently there's three stages of alien development. And here, the way she was able to escape so easily is these were babies. Okay, so these are all the same aliens on the planet. Because right after this, they find something straight out of aliens in an abandoned bunker. And we see these like little bug-like creatures attack at one point. So those are the same aliens, just like infant form? I thought the infants were like the tadpoles, the glow-in-the-dark lichen kind of things. Maybe like six kind of screamers, Arnie. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think the lichens were there. I guess I thought it was just another alien life form. Maybe it's what they eat when there's no humans crash landing on the planet. Mm. But they have light, so they can't eat them. Natural defenses. Oh, good point. There's a good evolution thing. But yes, these attacking aliens were all one species. Got it. And I'm glad the aliens come because it's at this point we finally get our dynamic. It took us half the movie to get here, but Riddick is now free. He's part of the group and the aliens are attacking and we're finally culling the herd of our cast. There's just too many of them. I couldn't believe at the end of the movie that Imam still had a follower. I'm like, well, how is he not dead yet? (laughs) (laughs) But I agree with Jacob. In that alien popped to mind very much when they were in this bunker and they started getting picked off. It's hard not to think of aliens, especially since there are aliens. Uh, but <laughs> but how they did it, again, I was going with it, with the follower going into the dark room to the side and all that kind of stuff. How they filmed it and how they got them into the situations was done well enough 
that I'm following along with interest, not just following along because it's on the screen. I would say it's fine. Like you guys said, it's Screamers, it's Alien. The entire plot seems very video game. We crash landed. We have to go to the base. Now the base has the ship, but we need the battery. So we got to go back to the ship. Now we got to go back to the base. It's a way of quadrupling the length of the video game without making the level designers do any more work. (laughs) Have you ever played Gears of War 2 by any chance or Gears of War? Because they have a species called the krill, which are basically flying creatures that attack you in shadows and darkness. But if you have a light anywhere around you or something that's burning a cell and torch, they can't touch you. It's exactly the same thing as this. They may have very well taken it from this movie. So you said video game? That's straight out of the video game for me. You know, at one point in this bunker, Fry finds this, like, solar system model. (laughs) It was somebody's science project, I think. (laughs) The volcano was the next bay over. Yeah, they just they forgot to bring the baking soda. To exactly, exactly. This was the dead giveaway for me. Okay, there is some kind of eclipse that's going to happen. Like, Fry, play with that thing a little bit more. Really make sure that you're always in the light before these creatures that live in... You know, there's creatures that live in the dark. They can't live underground forever. Come on, spin that wheel around a few more times. <laughs> but I'm going to say this, though. As the sun starts to set... My problems with the CGI that I had early on go away. I think they did some awesome CGI backdrops. That Saturn-like planet with the rings as it sets in the distance. I'm really getting off on this planet design. I mean, it's alien enough to make me completely believe it. Yeah, I liked it. Again, I I didn't have a problem with that. I thought it looked cool. Yeah. Are they with you? So we find out that there's a eclipse every 22 years. Do they ever find out how long this eclipse actually lasts, or are they just guessing? Because that's that's a big plot point here. Here they are in this bunker. Does this eclipse last a couple of hours? Does it last years? Do they figure this out? I never caught. I, I I know they debate how long it might last, and they make some decisions based on those assumptions. But do they ever come to a conclusion that this is going to last a month or a year that they can't wait it out? I think they're out of water and food. Is what I thought. Yeah, they have no supplies. They can't wait it out very long. They'd have trouble going a night. There was no water, if you remember. They had to drink the alcohol that Paris, the antiques dealer, was hiding in his sarcophagus. Yes, because that's character development in this movie. (laughs) I'm just saying. (laughs) Coke can did it for Rambo. (laughs) With the bad guys in First Blood Part 2, here we have it with alcohol. But I thought it was funny, though. It was comic relief, too, a, a bit. You know, they see this huge swarm and receive it from Riddick Vision. This huge swarm <laughs> of aliens coming out of the ground. I don't know. I might maybe wait a day, see if that sun <laughs> comes back up. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of vision. We get stretched negative vision during the crash. We get Riddick Vision. We get alien vision during the death of Zeke. There's a lot of camera styles going on. I'm not going to say they all work for me, but I know what I'm seeing, and it's none of it is as cool as Predator Vision from Predator, but... Or Tremors. It's functional. I kind of like the alien vision. It reminded me of those old magic eye pictures that we always have in our dorm room walls. I might be dating myself, but if you look at it, and for a couple of seconds or a couple of minutes, depending on how your eyes work, an uh, image pops out of this design. And the alien vision kind of reminded me of that, and I kind of dug it. It kind of reminded me when I'd watch scrambled porn, and I'm like, ooh, that's either a boob or an elbow. I might be seeing a boob. (laughs) It reminded me of the Dark Knights, which came later, but when he is just able to have that sonar to see. But I think that's the point, is these aliens, they have no eyes. They use some kind of weird sonar. 
Or they hunt on the smell of blood, and they're smelling Jack? Oh, they're sharks. I think this is the first time menstruation's ever been a plot point in a horror movie that I can recall. Correct me if I'm wrong, you guys have seen more than I have. They did talk about the bears in Friday the 13th Part 2, but they never did attack. <laughs> That's true, they did. <laughs> But that was it, right? She was menstruating. That was, I mean, they never say it. That That's the implication, right? Yeah. You find out Jack is actually a girl, got a shaved head, 12 years old or something. So kind of an ambiguous voice. Not really, you know, it could go either way. And yeah, they just kind of say she's bleeding or Jack is bleeding. Did you guys question that she was a boy at all? Or did, did you not even care because they didn't really focus on the character all that much? I think the first time I watched it, I didn't care. This time I watched it, I did not remember that. But I'm trying to keep track who the characters are, because I know we're going to have to talk about them for an hour. And I'm like, okay, that one's the girl. I mean, this did not play as a boy to me. This was no crying game. Yeah, I mean, it fooled me. I, I had no idea where it was going. And again, I liked when Jack was emulating Riddick and trying to be like Riddick, I, you know. To find out that was a girl, that you know, that kind of threw me off because you typically think of that as like an adolescent boy type thing to do. I thought it, it worked completely, and I too forgot about it until about two minutes before the reveal. Now the whole movie, I'm like, I think that's a girl, and I, I haven't seen this movie since 2000. Yeah, but I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's a girl. Admittedly, I have a fairly good memory. Maybe it was buried in a crevice of my lobe somewhere, but yeah, it happened to me. Like, oh wait, she's a girl, right? And then all of a sudden, the scene is there. So that's how it happened for me. Are we supposed to infer that Riddick could also smell her vaginal bleeding? If we knew anything about Riddick in this movie, we might be able to infer that. He has no backstory, except he paid 25 bucks to get his eyes changed out, right? Actually, he just paid a pack of menthols. Okay, 25 menthols. It was 25-something. <laughs> yeah, menthols. I didn't know they had menthol cigarettes that far into the future. That confused me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he saw it with his vision. He has night vision, not x-ray vision. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he saw something trickling out in the dark. I don't I don't want to go there. <laughs> it's possible. I do like that he and Jack have this affinity, though. The way, like, they're going to these bones and he only will alert Jack, hey, you might want to duck. The way he does it, he comes across like a badass. Does he come across like a bad guy? No. They tie him up. I mentioned Hannibal Lecter earlier. They want us to think he's Hannibal Lecter. He's not a raving psychopath. He does not kill without reason. But what he is, is an animal. Much like Fry at the beginning, I won't die for them. He will kill if it benefits him, but he's not going to kill for the fun of it. And he takes a shine to Jack. I kind of like that little repartee. Except we never see him kill. Like, we never see him need to make that choice. We get a little bit of that at the end. But again, I would have liked to have seen something with this main character, with Riddick, who is supposed to be my in or the protagonist or whatever for this film. I want to see some kind of development with him. I don't have any reason to care, to hate him, to like him. He's a blank slate. It's a bunch of talk that how evil and how strong and buff he is. And well, no, he, they're not talking. He is that buff. Okay, okay <laughs> but you, you get what I'm saying. We never have to see him be put to the test here. Well, we see him do superhuman things, and we see him come through. And then that battle with Johns, we see a little bit of it. I liked why he liked Fry is that he saw an that she was willing to kill everybody just like he's willing to kill everybody and they're kind of like-minded and that's why i think he got attached to her and he got attached to jack because of jack's affinity for him i cut that completely from the movie it makes complete sense why he likes fry to me 
And I think he knows what she did because he doesn't sleep in cryo sleep. I right. think he knows it all. Nobody else knows, but he's constantly awake in cryosleep. That's something I kind of like about this movie is it doesn't feel the need to spell it out. And at times it's frustrating. Why the fuck did the ship crash? At other times, I kind of like it that you got to pay attention and realize Jack's on his period and Riddick knows everything because he's awake in cryosleep. Actually, Arnie, didn't he overhear Fry tell John's? Did that whole conversation when, she, when he cut her hair? Or maybe he just got it confirmed or something. Yeah, I, I took it as he knew ahead of time. Yeah, he he does over here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this film isn't really challenging you and leaving things up. No, but that, that point about it not spelling everything out for you and if you pay attention, you can get a lot more stuff is a completely valid point because this is only the second time I've watched it and I was doing that the entire time. I'm not sure if I'm being completely clear about what I'm saying to you all about how I was interested in what was going on and I was willing to give the movie so many chances because I was just involved with all these things going on, not to the point where I'm like on the edge of my seat, but there's enough going on that I want to continue watching. I'm interested. I agree completely. And here is where Tui's strength comes. Tui's strength was not the dialogue scenes and it was not the camera work. In fact, he talked about how the camera people fought against him. Camera people who had worked for like Oliver Stone were going, no, this isn't how you do a shot. And he's like, but it's my vision. Yeah, no, bad. But what he can do here is stage action. When the action kicks off, when you've got the ticking clock, when it's nighttime, and when the crowd is getting picked off and down to the bare bones, and you're down to Jack and Imam and Paris and Fry and a few others, I'm really enjoying this movie. I like the suspense. I just love the inventiveness of the action. The scene where Riddick and that other nameless girl are laying down and the animals are flying above them and then she can't bear to be there anymore and she gets up and runs and Riddick knows to stay down and they cut her in half. That's awesome. Agreed. Great scene. Hmm. Okay. I mean, this seems all very rote to me. I would think it'd make more sense for the monsters to carry her away because there's no other damn food on this planet they do carry her away they just carry her away in pieces <laughs> in two or three different pieces yeah, yeah. like seagulls yeah I, I just don't think you'd want precious pieces of meat dripping off. That's all. I don't know. I'm glad there's stuff happening at this point. I'll put it that way. You know, the one shot that really sticks out to me, and I guess it was in the trailer. I don't remember this. You called it out, Arnie, is when Paris is getting attacked and he ignites that liquor and you see all those bugs around him. I did like that shot. I wish we got more stuff like that, a little bit more scary bugs jumping out or monsters, aliens, whatever these are, jumping out and attacking the people. It, it just at this point, it seems so rote as they're running through with their like neon rave glow sticks wrapped around them. And it, of course, one takes it off because he's I don't know, he has to grab something that fell off and all that type of horror motivations going on here. I, I would have liked some more scenes like when Paris died. I like that shot. That's a great shot. That's the best shot in the film. They put it in the trailer because they know it's going to draw people in. It worked for me. I also like just some of the gallows humor that Riddick has. Riddick is a strong personality. I like that they'd say, like, battlefield doctors decide who lives or dies. They call it triage. He just goes, they called it murder when I did it. Just that kind of sarcasm that he oozes is a little too cool for school, sure. But I'm digging the vibe. One scene I really liked was when Riddick, towards the end, stared down the alien. Oh, and awesome. The little dance, the little snake dance they do. 
I really enjoyed that scene. I, I thought it was really heightening what they set up earlier about Riddick being an animal and having animal instincts. And that's a very animal kind of thing to do. It played so beautifully. And props to Vin Diesel because you believe that alien is right in front of him. He did a great job with that scene. Props to that alien. You believe Vin Diesel's human. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I, I was wondering at this point, is Vin Diesel, is he not human? Is he some kind of science experiment with these eyes? Maybe, he ha- you know, he talks about how he's more animal than man. I don't find out. Maybe I'll find out next week, but I'm not finding out this week anything about this Riddick character, and it's maddening to me. I'm getting what I need to know. Well, we've had villains like bank robbers or the wild bunch and other people like that in movies for years that were the anti-heroes the tough guys were told they're tough but we do see them shoot people and we do see them rob banks and do evil things that would be helpful to your point in that we don't see riddick do anything that's bad we're just told the french connection even you have characters who who are supposed to be good and he turns out to be not as good as you think well here you have a bad guy that is supposed to be all badass but Maybe it's not as badass as we think, and they do it so much better in those other movies than they do here. It's a bit frustrating, sure, but when we get scenes like when he's staring down the alien, you finally get a piece of it, and it does leave you wanting more of this character, which maybe was the point, Jacob, of why they don't want to explain his whole backstory here. By the same token, for every cool moment we get, like the dance with the alien, Tui gives us a crappy-ass moment, like when he's staring down with Johns, and they do the oh. rapid cut eye, 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 eyeball shot. <laughs> it's like Tui, he's got vision, but he's needs someone to rein him in, or he just needs more practice. Again, his second theatrical feature. He's throwing it all out there, and I'll give him A for effort. But we'll see what I give him for execution. When we finally get to the end, though, I mean, I really do enjoy the scene where Riddick is dragging those batteries and people are like, can you keep up? Oh, he'll keep up. I mean, again, just a badass. Sets up the scene terrifically. There's also that really funny line he had when he said something about it looks clear. And then the guy gets attacked and he says, it looks clear. His line reading was completely offbeat. And completely not what he was doing for the rest of the movie. It was really kind of funny. It's almost human for this character who's been larger than life the whole movie. That did get a chuckle out of me. They're having him look in the dark. I said it looked. Yeah, I chuckled there. That, that was one moment, one of the very few moments I liked with Riddick. It's one of the times when he's actually, yeah, showing more range of emotion. I said he has gallows humor before, but this is one time when he's almost cracking a joke. It's almost a Arnold line. And yeah, it still continues to endear me to this character. To the point that I don't necessarily believe he's such a selfish asshole that when he locks the three in the cave and runs off, I think he put them there for their own protection, not so he could just leave them there to die. Well, then that negates the whole debate that him and Fry have at the end. I mean, I think you have to believe that for that debate to have any emotion there where Fry convinces him that they're worth going back for and saving, since he knows that she was willing to dump them all at the beginning of the film. And that's the only bit of character development we get towards Riddick. It's the end of the movie when he decides to go back and save them. It would have been great if he would have been ditching people throughout the film, so we got that moment, but no. He gets no character development moment. They were trying to, at the whole time at the beginning of the movie, trying to make the characters thinking that he was the one who was killing them. And then the movie would try to trick us into thinking, oh, he's not that bad a guy. And at the end, it makes complete sense. They did it this way for the arc of the character in the movie. But I don't know that he has an arc. Again, I think it's Fry's arc. Fry started off 
that we're going to kill everyone. I'm not going to die for them. And here at the end, she has to atone. She has to convince him that it's worth their lives to save Iman's and Jack's. Those are the last two survivors are Iman and Jack. Uh, no, I'm hearing what you're saying, and that is very true. But he has the same thing. He doesn't want to die for these people either. And so he changes his mind as well because of her and because of his experience here. He goes back. He's ready to go, you see. And so he does the exact same arc as she has. Thank good Fry uses, like, really sweet-smelling shampoo. That must have been what convinced him. (laughs) I think it's because, yeah, he has a grudging respect for Fry. I also think it's because he has an affection for Jack. Jack's the one person he warmed to this whole movie, and if Jack had died, I don't think he'd go back. He's gone back for Jack before. Jack got trapped under the alien with just the bones between them. Riddick could have run off. If it had been anyone but Jack, Riddick would have been gone. Now, in the original script... They got back to the ship, and Riddick died. And it was Fry, Iman, and Jack who flew off. That's not what happens, but that was what Tui had envisioned. He died how? An alien killed him. Basically, flip him and Fry. Oh, well, that would have sucked. We wouldn't have a retrospective. (laughs) I could have my night free. Uh, (laughs) We wouldn't be doing the Chronicles of Fry next week? (laughs) That is a moment that did shock me, though. Out of this film that I was saying so was so rote, that Fry, who is like one of the major characters, she gets out alive, right? Like, she doesn't die. And when that alien comes and just grabs her, it's not even a glamorous death. It's just like she is snatched and gone. Well, it's horror movie logic. She has to die. The girl never dies, though. It, the virgin never dies in these films, right? She's not the virgin. She was willing to kill all these people. She, had, she has to atone. But so was Riddick. But Riddick is set up as a villain. She's set up as a hero, and she does something wrong. I get what you're saying, and it makes perfect sense to me that, yes, this is her atonement. She didn't just say she was willing to let them all die. She pulled the fucking lever. I mean, she killed them. It malfunctioned. But it's no different than if she'd pulled a gun with a trigger to someone's head and the gun jammed. She got off on a technicality. Actually, I thought that the other guy disabled the mechanism so she couldn't do it. He realized she was going to do it, and he disabled it. And I thought he, I thought Owens just talked her out of it. Three different interpretations. She obviously pulled the handle. She had hesitation. She pulled the handle. I could never tell what Owens was doing. He was screaming not to do it, but I thought he was actually trying to save their life, not stop her from doing that. Which would save her their lives, which is what I thought. No, I meant save all their lives, not just the passengers. Yeah, Jacob's right. We saw three different things. <laughs> so I get from that moral logic that her penance is death she does die for them she learns her lesson that they are worth dying for but i also see jacob's point i mean she is the woman and riddick isn't gonna have a romance with jack for the sequel so you almost see jack going off with iman and fry going off with riddick but no she does die it could go either way i didn't weep for her i never really warmed up to her and When she dies, though, man, Riddick in the last, like, ten minutes of this film, what a pussy. (laughs) Uh, Please, Vin Diesel, don't kick my ass for saying that. But Would you say it to his face? I don't think so. No, absolutely not. (laughs) But not for me! Not for me! Oh, my God, what a horrible delivery of a horrible line. I mean, there's no good way to deliver such a shitty line, but it's so stupid that she could die for them but not die for him. And then the second just crap line in the script 
that he had to deliver, Riddick died on that planet. Yeah, I didn't like that line either. I like the idea of what they were going for, but I didn't like the way it was put across. Two on the nose. Yeah, it's like the whole movie is not spelling everything out for us, and this one they decide to. Yeah. Riddick was never born for me, to, much less to have this monster animal die. That, that, yeah, that line is hollow. It's, to me, I read it very utilitarian. Hey, with those bounty hunters come, lie for me. No, no, no. I know they're going for symbolism, <laughs> but nothing in this film, no character development is established to make that play out. It just would have worked better if there'd been like an additional scene where they encountered a ship on a space lane and somebody said, what happened to Riddick? And Riddick looks at Iman and Iman looks at Riddick and Iman goes, he died on the planet. And Riddick just nods, you know, something like that. That would have been a much better way to deliver it. But to give me these soap opera type of lines that are thudding, it's just a sour note on a movie that had been for the second half, in my opinion, a fun ride. But is that your opinion? Jacob, Arnie, do you recommend Pitch Black? Look, this movie is road. It's derivative of other films, of Screamers, for heaven's sakes. How can it be any good if it's derivative of Screamers, which is already derivative of other films? But I've said, and I've defended other films on this podcast in the past, that if there's something besides character development or something besides plot, if there's some other end that I have, I could go with that film. I I think G.I. Joe Retaliation was a great example. For Arnie, there's no character development that hurt it for you. I really enjoyed the creative action in it. You know, having The Rock quoting Jay-Z in a prayer, that was enough character development for me, for him. And and I feel like I was having maybe a lot of the problems you had with that film in Pitch Black here. There's no characters I ever really grasp onto. There's no one I'm going for. Riddick, he's built up to be a badass. Yes, he could stare down these aliens and he could punch them and he, he, you know, but I wanted to see someone that, that was truly evil. Was that truly was this animal and that we'd see his journey through this planet that they'd exploit that, that he would have that change in heart, something. I wanted to see some kind of character development. There's enough characters in this film. They could have done it with one of them. Instead, I'm going for the uh, cross-dresser because he, she thinks Riddick is cool and I I, I like that relationship there. <laughs> Otherwise, the actions, okay. Characters, uh Story, uh, there's a lot of give-me's, a lot of mulligans, as you call it, Brock, in this film. One too many for me, and just not enough creativity in the action or other aspects of this film to keep my interest. So, you know, this to me, it's not far off of that sci-fi quality that you mentioned got a sequel from this, and one hour sequel, prequel, whatever it was that you mentioned, Arnie. Uh, for me, this is, this is an easy not recommend. Arnie. Like I said, I haven't seen this movie since 2000. I remembered really liking it, but I hadn't gone back. I didn't go back when I saw Chronicles of Riddick, because this is a fairly simple movie. People crash on a planet, they fight aliens in the dark, Riddick's a badass, bloodshed, credits roll. In fact, I could just edit that in at the beginning as my plot summary. Why are we having an hour conversation about this? That sums it up perfectly. Let's move on. Let's have a beer. So my memory of just having so much fun with it then was really shocked when I'm watching it this time and seeing a lot of flaws in this film. I mean, I haven't used this term since The Aviator, but Tui engages in some serious artistic douchebaggery. (laughs) It returns. This is The Aviator. Stuart is spinning right now. Scorsese, Tui, you two go together. (laughs) 
it really was off-putting. And I agree with you, Jacob. The characters here, there's so many of them that live for so long. To take a horror movie analogy, because while this is sci-fi, I would definitely say this is a horror movie in it. That's one of the things I like about it. It has the pacing of an early 80s horror film where we're going to start with just setting up and getting to know the characters and the suspense, but it wants to have the body count of a late 90s, early 21st century film, so we have too many characters. In the original Friday the 13th, we really only had five or six characters we had to deal with. In the remake, we had a dozen, and it's because you need to kill them quickly. And here they spend so much time with too many characters where you only know to focus on Riddick. And so there are serious problems with this. That said, when night falls, the fun really clicks for this movie. And I think there's some great, not good, great action scenes. And I think Vin Diesel carries this movie on his extraordinarily broad shoulders. So I expected coming into this retrospective to give this movie a strong, strong recommend. Instead, I'm going to give it a weaker recommend, but it's certainly recommendable. It's not a smart film, but it's a fun film, and I stand by. This is why I watched Vin Diesel's career from this point on. He is one to watch. So it's a good enough movie. I think you should check it out. When I first watched this a couple of years ago when I was telling people I liked it, I told them it's a horror movie. It's a horror movie. It's like Alien... But I said, but you know what really reminds me of? It reminds me of Deep Blue Sea. It's not as fun as Deep Blue Sea. It's not as funny as Deep Blue Sea. It's not as tongue-in-cheek as Deep Blue Sea. But it has the exact same format. <laughs> it has a lot of the same things going on. And people who donated to our Jaws retrospective know that I recommended Deep Blue Sea. It's a lot of fun. This is not as much fun as that, but I certainly was involved in that. Arnie's 100% right. Once it gets dark... This movie takes off, and it's a lot of fun to watch. The action scenes and Vin Diesel do what he's doing. He pops off the screen. So this is a solid recommend for me. It is not a great movie, but it's an enjoyable enough experience to tell you to watch it. You'd be surprised how much you're going to enjoy that second half. And we're all saying the same thing about that first half, but I was more tolerant of it, it sounds, than the two of you were because I was interested enough in what was going on. And I'm going to forgive the conveniences of the movie because I was having a good enough time and they made it pay off. Like with Vin Diesel's Night Vision, yeah, it's completely convenient. A guy with night vision ends up on a dark planet, but how they use it in the second half makes it okay to give the movie that mulligan so yeah recommend for me but apparently an audience was found for this movie and they gave us a sequel that many people didn't want but some people did and that's why we're here folks next week we have the chronicles of riddick but in between we are in our fall donation drive it's normally horror for us and it kind of is here where we are continuing our simon Pegg nick frost retrospective people hoped we'd do the three flavors cornetto trilogy well we did you two better this friday we did the theatrical the world's end that is for those who support now playing those donations help keep us going if you enjoy the Superman series we did over the summer, the DC Hitmen series, this Pitch Black series, the all of these shows are funded by your donations. We have no sponsors, no advertisers. We rely on listener support to keep the show going, 
And as our thank you, we have these extra podcasts. So for those who donate $10 or more by Halloween, you get five bonus podcasts, this Simon Pegg Nick Frost retrospective. And for those who donate $25 or more, get six additional podcasts, the Psycho series, long requested classic horror series, our first Hitchcock review. And you can find all the details on how to support us here at Now Playing by clicking the banner at the top of the page at nowplayingpodcast.com. And if you want to join in the conversation, of course, you can go to Facebook and Twitter, as well as our forums. Links to all of that can also be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. So guys, are you ready for the Chronicles of Riddick? Past the Chronicles of Riddick. (laughs) So we'll join you next week for the Chronicles of Riddick. I think we should go now. Did not know who was fucking with. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. One of my best. If you say so. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Riddick film. I told one man where I might go. I show trust to one man. You can hear more movie reviews at our website, NowPlayingPodcast.com. In our archive section, you can find our reviews of the Transformers films, Star Trek movies, the Avenger films, Rambo, Rocky, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Missing the party? Come on. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this review with other listeners. I think we should go now. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. You following me? The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. You think I'd remember? Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. But it's just a mark, and I'm just a payday. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy panties, coffee mugs, t-shirts, totes, boxers, teddy bears, and much, much more. So throw on a fresh pair of panties. Let's get this right. You can also help Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Perhaps the breeder would do it. If somebody just asked him. Now Playing's Riddick Retrospective series is edited by Heath, Phil, and Arnie. Don't know about this new crew of yours. They seem a bit skittish. Probably shouldn't tell them what happened in the last crew. Now Playing is not affiliated with Universal Pictures. Pitch Black and the Riddick films are the property of Universal Pictures and no infringement is intended. Maybe you should pretend like you're talking to someone educated in the penal system. In fact, don't pretend. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Finally found something worse than me, huh? Now Playing is a Venganza Media production copyright 2013, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. We can't leave. I say goodnight.
His name is Tui. There are Tui cuts of this film. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Take that to the bank, Arnie. <laughs> Let's get a t-shirt of that made up. <laughs> All right. Let me rephrase. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Now playing show without some bad puns. <laughs> I'm, I'm 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 keeping. I'm just going in a different direction. <laughs> that one. Not to be dissuaded. Let's try that joke again. <laughs> Great. I have an insert to go right before the two e cuts joke. <laughs> joke in quotes. <laughs> Is it an insert to cut out the two e joke? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's sticking to his guns on this one, folks. <laughs> Harold, it really... I mean, I remember... Uh, let me... Uh, let there. me clear my yes. throat. <laughs> Keith David. Sometimes I confuse him with David Keith. <laughs> Two completely different persons. One was in the parent trap. One was not. Don't you mean two different people? <laughs> oh, do not encourage this man. What are you doing? Uh, uncalled for. <laughs> I can't tell if he's encouraging me or making fun of me. I both. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Riddick doesn't say his first word until I check the clock exactly 30 minutes into this film. And what was the first word? Fast forward to the 30-minute mark and check. <laughs> I thought it was something profound, like, it's clobbering time or something. I, I forgot. I mean, I, I can't even... <laughs> Think about it this way. If you ever watch The Untouchables, Brian De Palma's movie, there's four guys in The Untouchables. The two guys who take a drink die. Why? Because they're doing something they're not supposed to do. They're supposed to be heroes, but they're not acting like heroes. They have to die. Not that The Untouchables is a horror movie, but it's a good example for the situation. I I get what you're saying, Brock. Not with The Untouchables analogy. I don't get that at all. <laughs> no thanks to The Untouchables analogy, but you get what I'm saying. Okay. But, you know, having The Rock do a prayer to Jay-Z or quoting Jay-Z in a prayer, that was enough character development for me, for him. I would have preferred a prayer to Jay-Z. <laughs> Scorsese, Tui, you two go together. Are they Tui peds in a pod? It was my turn. It was my turn. <laughs> Our first Hitchcock review. Yeah. I had nothing. <laughs> I, I got something to say. And then it came out like, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> and, you can say I think we should go now. That's my Vin Diesel. Terrible. I think we should go now. Now you have two takes. We can't leave without saying goodnight. 